We are in the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. You can follow along with me. Verse 16 says this. All scripture, Timothy, it is inspired by God. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. A couple of weeks ago, it was Mother's Day, and we looked at how important Paul and, by default, God, through his inspiration of Scripture, believed it to be that Lois and Eunice were a part of Timothy's life, that they, that they set in his foundation the sacred writings. Then last week, we noticed that it isn't just a knowing of the Scriptures that saves, but an applied wisdom of that truth that brings the reality of what those pages have to say into the heart and the mind of the man that is truly converted by faith in a person, he says, a person who is the foretold Christ, and his name is Jesus. This week, I, I want to give, uh, I guess I want to give your faith a little steroid shot. We're going to divert a little bit off course, but not really. The intent of today is directly out of an assumption that I'm making here from verses 16 and verse 17. As Paul says to Timothy, all scripture is inspired or God breathed by God profitable. Uh, we, we can't really teach that unless we have the assumption of the fact that, that we, we buy into that fact, that these are the sacred writings. But I think that we might need a little bolstering. We might need a little steroid shot under our faith to help us to answer the question, I mean, do we really believe that this is sacred? Do we really believe that these things are inspired by God? Even if we figure out what it is to, to be inspired by God, I mean, do we, do we buy it? Do we believe it? So I want to give you a little steroid shot for your faith, something that will boost your faith a little bit so that you can stand under maybe the questions you've already gotten about your faith and whether or not you believe these writings to be sacred and your God to be the one true God or not. Uh, or maybe those questions are still yet to come. Maybe you're young in the faith. Maybe you haven't gotten out there and had these discussions with anybody. Maybe you've not faced some of these hard questions. If you lived in the year 1631 and you needed a Bible and you ran down to the, uh, the little Bible bookstore the Lifeway back in the day. And uh, you went in there and you said, hey, I need a new Bible. They gave you probably that year's printed, brand new, translated 1631 Bible. You took it home, you opened it up, you started your reading. Maybe you thumbed through and you found yourself in Exodus and everything was great. You read through the Ten Commandments and you find number one, two, three. Yeah, they're all there until you got to number seven. Anybody remember? Seventh commandment is off the top of your head. Sunday school, kids, nobody. Seventh commandment. It's thou shalt not commit adultery. But in the 1631 Bible, as you're reading through, what you found was it says, and thou shalt commit adultery. Oops. A little word was left out there. It came to be known the Wicked Bible, and even the King of England gave the printer a reproof. That's a big deal. That's a big oops. Uh, that's a 
somewhat significant error. Maybe you've heard someone say something like this. You can't really trust your Bible. It, It was written by men, and it surely wasn't inspired by God. I mean, men wrote this down. And even if it were inspired by God, how do you explain, you know, when you talk about inerrancy, how do you explain all the errors that are in your Bible? And I would say if you ask them to show you one of those errors, they would probably be hard-pressed to do that. They're just, number one, assuming that there are a bunch of errors in your Bible. But let's just ask. Let's just ask the honest question. Does your Bible have errors? Uh, Let me give you an honest answer. Yes and no. Now, that answer may surprise you. And before you start throwing whatever you have there under your seat at me and yelling heretic, uh, let me just unpack that answer for you a little bit. Martin Luther, he challenged the church with words like this, and I'll paraphrase. He says, if we preach with all we have, but we fail to confront the point of conflict, but we fail to confront the point of conflict, then our efforts are evasive and cowardice at best. And our faith, void. And what does he mean by that? Essentially, what what he's saying is that we can preach all we want, guys. Uh, We can even preach with fervor. But if we skirt some of the obvious issues, if we avoid some of the hard questions that might get thrown at us in our Christianity, then Martin Luther would say, then we're just being evasive to the issues. And in truth, we're just being cowards. Uh, Let me encourage you that what we believe, what you say you believe in Christianity, it is in fact true. And as such, you don't have to worry about it. Does that make sense to you? I think sometimes we worry that if we talk to someone about our faith or if we talk to someone about Christianity, that they're going to they're going to grab our Bible and beat us with it, albeit philosophically. They, they're going to talk us out of our own faith. And so we'd rather just not talk about our faith to anyone. But the truth is that we don't stand on shaky ground. If you have the, the answers, you can field the questions because there are answers. You don't have to skirt the issues. Now, if you don't know the answers, then that's a whole other issue. You need, some, you need some equipping, some training. But the truth is, our faith is sure. It's not on shaky ground. There are confident and sure answers. But if we avoid the questions altogether, that's not fair, is it? That's not fair to the guy who might be looking for answers. Even if he doesn't realize he's looking for the true answers. So we'll ask the honest question, does, does your Bible have errors? This morning I want to deal with that, that hard question. Can I trust my Bible? Can I trust it? But let me encourage you, if you get this this morning, if you get what I, what I, what I share with you this morning, I think you'll walk out of here carrying your, your Bible with a, with a newfound respect And I think you'll walk out of here carrying in your heart a new and greater affection for the God of the Bible. So just hang on, okay? Hang on. Let me start with a couple facts, all right? And if you never take notes in church, 
Uh, today's one of those days, and I'm going to give you some statistics and some numbers and just some, just some straight points that maybe they're worth writing down, all right? Let me give you a fact. The Bible is a collection of writings. No one man sat down and wrote the entirety of what you hold in your hand, okay? Maybe you didn't know that. The Bible is a collection of many writings from many men. Let me give you another fact. None of those original writings exist today. Now, maybe you didn't know that. Maybe you thought that at some seminary somewhere or some museum, we were housing all the original autographs. That's what we call them. The autographs of the original writers. That somewhere out there, ink and parchment lay flat behind four-inch thick glass, protected. Maybe it's in the Billy Graham Retreat Center somewhere. Maybe, you know, John Piper's got it or... Charles Stanley, whoever it is you follow. I don't know what you thought, but we don't have them. And that is just the honest truth. The original texts, the paper and ink that Paul wrote out on, Philippians, 2 Timothy, we don't have them. And by all indications, we're not going to find them. Now, that may bother some of you, but let me just say this. It's probably a good thing that we don't have them. Because like any other religious artifact, we'd probably build a church around it, right? It'd be the church of the original sacred pen and parchment writings, right? And we would bow down to the paper. It's probably a good thing we don't have them. Uh, The guy who taught me the Bible, he told me a story one time that he was in seminary. And uh, they were going through the story of uh, the guy's ear getting cut off, you know. And then Jesus puts the guy's ear back on and heals him, you know. Remember that? Uh, there in the garden but when Jesus was arrested. He says, Prof, and he was kind of, you know, he liked to irritate the professors. He said, Prof, uh, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus put the cutoff ear back on or did he create a whole new ear and put it back on and then the dead ear was laying on the ground or was the ear hanging off and he just pasted it back on? Uh, what happened there? And the prof probably, knowing how this guy asked the question, probably just looked at him. Like, why are you asking silly questions? But he says, yeah, I, I really don't know. And uh, later the guy told me, he said, you know, the reason I asked was because if there was a dead ear laying there, we would have probably built a church around it and there'd be the church of the dead ear somewhere. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, I haven't, but uh, they say that there's a church built on anything, any historical, biblical artifact, they'll build a church around it. And that may not be the single problem as much as it is that people will bow down to whatever that thing is. It's probably a good thing that we don't have the original manuscripts of the writings of what you hold in your hand. So don't let it bother you too much. Let me tell you another reason why it shouldn't bother you too much. We don't have any original autographs, any pen and ink, parchment ink, for any ancient writing of literature from this time period. None. We don't have Homer's Iliad in a museum somewhere. We don't have Caesar's Gaelic Wars at West Point behind glass. They don't exist. This is typical, all right? The Bible is not the exception to the rule that we have all these other ancient original writings, but we don't have the original texts of the Bible. That's typical, guys, and it's probably intended. What do we have instead? Very simple. We have copies. And the truth is we have copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. Now, is this a problem that we have copies and we don't have in our hand the original parchment and ink from Paul or Moses, etc.? 
Well, maybe it's a problem. Let me tell you why it could be a problem. If in all the copies we have, they're all different, then we got a problem. Okay? That's just basic rationale. If they're all different, then we've probably got a problem. Maybe there's someone out there who asks you these hard questions that has a little more information than the standard guy. Maybe he knows that there are, in all of the copies that we have, somewhere around 200,000 variations between the copies. Now, that's a big number. That's a, that's a daunting number. That's a staggering number. So what do we do with it? What do we do with those 200,000 variations in not the originals, but the copies of the copies of the copies in the copies? Well, I'm going to help you out this morning. I'm going to whittle that number down. So hang with me here. We're going to take that number from 200,000 and bring it down and understand it a little clearer. The copies, your Bibles that you hold in your hand, are cast from are amazingly accurate. And here's why. Those copies were superior to any other ancient literature copies ever. Okay? The copies we have of Scripture are far superior to any other comparable work of its time. Two main reasons. We have more copies, number one, and number two is what we call proximity. We have a sheer number of copies that is greater than any other ancient work comparable to the Bible of its time. And the proximity that our copies were written to the original drafts is nearer than any other ancient writing of its time. Does that make sense? Let me explain. First, the amount. How many copies are there? The average number of copies for all other works of literature of this time, size, etc. Check this out. The average of all of them, number of copies that we have for any other comparable ancient work of literature is nine. The highest outside of the Bible is Homer's Iliad. We have 643 copies. It's not bad. It's better than nine, right? 643. Of your New Testament alone, you have 5,000 Greek manuscripts. 5,000. You have 8,000 Latin manuscripts. That's a pretty big difference. Not to mention we have what are called the quotations of the fathers, the quotations of the church fathers. Here's what that means. From like 70 AD to about 300 AD, there were these guys that get now referred to as the church fathers. They wrote to the churches. They wrote about church. They wrote about Christianity. And they often quoted scripture. So we have this compilation of writings from the church fathers that we call the quotations of the fathers. And one textual critic, one scholar in this area, he was asked the question, you know, if all of the other copies that we have of the New Testament were burned, they were all gone, what if we just lost them all? Could we, strictly from the quotations of the church fathers, piece together the New Testament once again? And this guy, this scholar, he said, this question roused my curiosity, and seeing as I did possess all the writings of the church fathers, I started a search. He wrote later that to this day I have found all but 11 verses of the New Testament just from the church fathers' writings. The Bible is the most well-documented work in history. In history. What about proximity? That's the amount of copies we have. Now, how close were they? 
By proximity, we mean how far were the originals from the copies that we actually have and possess. Check this out. Because obviously, the nearer the better, right? You follow me here? The average proximity for all other ancient works is 1,200 years. 1,200 years. That's the average nearness to the original authors. The average proximity for just your New Testament, actually not the average, but, but the max for the New Testament major works that we have were 300 years. We have some, uh, we have some pieces of manuscripts that go back as close as 117 years to the originals. Do you see the vast difference in proximity and sheer amount of copies that we have? By amount and proximity, your Bible wins hands down. But what about those 200,000 so-called errors? The truth is that those errors would better be called variations at this point. But let's just talk about them. In all those copies that we have, all those copies of copies, and remember, you have more copies than any other work in ancient history. And that seems good and maybe bad at the same time. You have more copies, which means what? You have more room for error. But having more copies outweighs the more errors because now you have more copies to compare off of each other. And so it balances itself out. But in all those copies, we have to deal with those 200,000 variations, 200,000 differences found in all of our copies. So let's break it down. When it comes to textual criticism, and that's what we call this, it's the analyzing of all the different parchments, of all the different copies. When it comes to textual criticism, you've got to understand how the numbers work. All right, now hang with me here. I know this seems a little bit academic, but the intent here is not to give you a crash course in New Testament uh, manuscript reliability here. The, the, the intent is to bolster your faith so that you can raise your Bible high, knowing that what you have is the Word of God in essential purity and essence. All right, so hang on here through, through the numbers and the academia. In 4,000 manuscripts, if there is one error repeated, that doesn't count as one error. It counts as 4,000 errors. This is how we come up with the number 200,000. If, for instance, in 2,000 copies, the same letter is dropped out, because in number one copy in that line, that scribe dropped it, and now everybody else dropped it, and they were actually honoring the original as they had it, that counts not just as one place of error, it's 2,000 errors. You see how the number 200,000 becomes a little bit inflated at that point. But that's how, that's how you keep track. If you take away all those places and you make those 2,000 places that one letter was dropped, one place, one occurrence, then that number 200,000 you can bring down to 10,000 places of variation. All right? So you may want to write that down. There's only 10,000 in all of our copies places or points of variation in your scriptures. Now, what kind of variations are these? We've got we to ask that question. We don't want to skirt the issue. Where do the variations come from? What do they look like? There's two kinds of errors or variations when it comes to scribes copying your Bible. All right? There are what we call unintentional and intentional errors. All right? Hang on here. Unintentional errors would be errors of sight, where if you're looking at one page and you're copying it to another page, and you're, I mean, you're thumbing, you're copying a mass amount of literature here, there is 
an opportunity, right? That you could look here, right here, look here, right here, skip a line, look here, right here, and you've missed something. Or you can write a word twice, or you can write a letter twice. That opportunity has to present itself. So there are unintentional errors of sight. That'll happen. All right? There are also unintentional errors of sound. And this makes sense. They had what were called scriptoriums. And scribes would sit in a room, and you would have one guy who would read the text. And then there'd be several scribes who, by listening, would write down a copy of that text. And so you can already imagine how just by listening, there would be unintentional errors of sound. Uh, Maybe, for example, the guy says the word through, and you're thinking the word through, but he's talking about the word through. Make sense? So unintentional errors, sight, sound, that makes sense. There were also, though, we have to say, intentional errors. Why would there be intentional errors? Let me give you a couple examples. Intentional errors are errors that come when a scribe decides that something needs to be corrected. All right, so you got Fred the scribe sitting there, and he says, that doesn't seem right. I'm going to take the liberty of making it right in his own estimation. And this happened. All right, thank you, Fred the scribe. But it happened. Sometimes you would change something to harmonize because they thought it would mesh better with the rest of Scripture. And that happened. Sometimes they wouldn't do it just to harmonize, but they would change it very simply because grammatically it just sounded better. Uh, I remember in uh, college when I took uh, Greek, uh, the oddest thing they said when we were translating and we'd come to uh, the Greek and it would say, this manuscript says this and this manuscript says this. This manuscript says something that it looks like an obvious error, like it looks like he's dropped this letter out. But this manuscript, uh, this manuscript scribe, he put the word in and he, it's in essence, he fixed it. And there was a rule in Greek translation that said, go with the one that's wrong. Here's what I mean by that. The rule is that you don't take the one that's fixed because the inclination of the copyist would be to fix something, not not to leave it in error. And so what would be the most original would be the one that left the letter out. Does that make sense? So that happens as you're copying in the text. And they did it intentionally. Sometimes, and this is probably the most unfortunate, They even had theological motives to change their copy. Uh, One example might be in Matthew, where Scripture says that nobody knows the time when Christ's return will be. That seems a little relevant, doesn't it? Um, uh, But it says not even the Son will know. Not even the Son will know. Uh, At a time when there was a raging battle for the divinity of Christ, you had some scribes who couldn't bear to put that the Son of Man, the Son of God, does not know something that the Father knows. And so they fixed it. (laughs) They fixed it. So that happens. So you'd have unintentional errors, intentional errors. Um, Some type of unintentional or intentional variations occur in 10,000 places in all the copies we have. All right? Now let's break that down. If you take out the obvious errors of dropped words, added letters, misspelled words. You know, if you're an English teacher and your student turns in uh, a paper and they wrote uh, something, maybe they got the date wrong. They just, 
they put yesterday's date instead of today's day. It's an obvious error. If we look at the copies and we take out those obvious errors out of the 10,000 places, that brings our number down from 10,000 to 400 occurrences. Okay? That's a smaller number. 400. If you take out the obvious, unintentional, and even intentional errors. All right? Let me bring that number 400 down a little bit. Only 400 demand anything more than that obvious consideration. But 350 of those 400, check this out, don't even affect the meaning of the text. So 400 is still a pretty big number. What do we do with that? What you have to understand is 350 of those 400 don't affect the text at all. Let me give you an example. If in Romans it were to say, our Lord Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus our Lord... In essence, you have to ask the question, does it affect the meaning or the translation of the text anyway? And what scholars say is, out of those 400 places that demand some sort of attention, other than just obvious misspellings or added words or repeated words or dropped letters, etc., 350 of those really don't affect the text at all. So now we're left with 50. So now you find only 50 places in your Bible that demand serious consideration Amounts to about two paragraphs, uh, half a dozen verses of your scripture. Now listen to what one well-known textual critic named Philip Schaff said about those 50 places. And maybe you'll feel a little more comfortable with even those. Listen now. Of those 50 passages of serious consideration, not one, not one represents an article of faith, or precept of duty that isn't abundantly sustained by other and undoubted passages. Let me translate scholarly lingo. What he's saying is that out of those 50, none of them affects any doctrine, any foundational pillar of what you and I hold dear in our Christianity. None of them causes us to scratch our head and say, was he born of a virgin or not? Did he raised from the dead? Was he even dead at all? Or did he just pass out and then wake up three days later? None of these 50 places cause any tenant of the faith to shake. That's good news. The Bible. Let me give you another statistic here. The Bible, because of all these things, and I've given you a really crude understanding of this, this science, really. But the Bible, in the end, has the highest copying accuracy of any book in history. Homer's Iliad has a 95% accuracy. The National Epic of India, 90% accuracy. Your Bible, you have, in essence, 99.5% copying accuracy accuracy and of that one half of one percent no tenant of the faith no doctrine of your belief is called into question that is not clearly explained by other undoubted and unquestioned passages of scripture that's amazing amazing I'd say it's divine. Let me push it a little bit harder. 
What we can say then is that we have in our hand our Bible in essential purity. For all practical purposes, what you hold in your hand is the inspired and inerrant Word of God. But let's push a little harder. What do you say to the guy who says, but your, your Bible isn't inerrant? Well, you can say, well, 99.5%, bud. It, it's, it's right on. Higher than anything else in history. But also, you need to understand, and this is an important point that I'll not fully unpack here, that the promise given to inerrancy is not to the copies, but to the original. God did not promise Harold, the guy writing it down somewhere in some dark dungeon, that his copy would be perfect. It'd be nice if he would have, but he didn't do it. As it is, you have 99.5% accuracy. I think God's hand was still involved. Amen? No close second even to the accuracy of the Bible. Okay? But the truth is, you need to understand, that when we talk about inerrancy, when we talk about inspiration, that was promised not to the copy of the copy of the copy of the copy. It was promised to the original autograph. And there's a difference. Praise God, these scribes are pretty good. Let me tell you why they did such a good job. If you were a scribe in this day, that was your only job. You would go to work in the morning. You would bathe. You would pray. You would put on a certain clothing. You would sit down and use a certain ink with a certain type stylus. And you would take one page that you were going to copy and you would look at one letter and you would write one letter. You would look at the next letter, you would write that letter. You would look at one word and you would write one word. You would go to one line and write that one line. When you got done with that page, you went back and you had to check that page. You counted the letters, you counted the letters. You counted the words, you counted the words. You counted the lines, you counted the lines. Then you handed that copy to an older scribe, a seasoned scribe, and he did the same thing. If they found one error, one letter missing in the wrong spot, uh, a word misspelled, etc., they would ball it up, throw it away. You would start over. Take another bath, pray again, put fresh clothes on, you'd start over. Anytime they came to the name of God, it is said that they would stop what they were doing before they wrote the name of God. They would go bathe again, put on new clothes, get new ink, new stylus. They would write the entire name of God. While they were writing that name of God, if the king were to walk in, they were under strict orders that they didn't even have to acknowledge the king, which was in this day and time certain death. While you're writing the name of God, nothing else matters. Do you see how... how strict they were on this and thus you get 99.5% accuracy one guy said what you get is the greatest copying accuracy of all time and very clean scribes <laughs> you know the last verses of Deuteronomy even the last verses of your Bible they give a warning that we not add one thing to God's word uh, the point is that God almost assumes that there will be copying errors. Deuteronomy thirty-two forty-seven, Moses' last words to his people. This is not an idle word. It's the end of the, the Pentateuch, the holy collection of books that Israel had. This is not an idle word, he says, that we have from God. It's not an ineffective 
unemployed word. It is your very life, church. It is your very life. Proverbs 30, verse 6, don't add to God's word lest God reprove you and call you a liar. God assumed there would be additions, subtractions, errors. But the grass fades and the flower withers, but the word of the Lord, he promises, will abide forever. Let me be clear. If the original autographs, if we had them, and we found that they were 99.9.9999999% accurate, they would be worthless. Did you hear what I said? If we had the original writings inspired by God and we found them to be 99.99999, if we found any error in them at all, they would not be the word of God. But what if in the copies we find one half of 1%? Is that as big of a problem now? Because in, in the first situation, who is impugned? God, the original, inspiring, holy, perfect God. In the second, it's just Harold described. One textual critic explained it this way. If I'm crossing, he said, at a river where there normally is a bridge, but this day the water has overcome the bridge. He said, would I just cross the river at some arbitrary spot? He said, no, that makes no sense. He said, I'll cross where I know the bridge to be. Even though I can't see the bridge, I'll trust it to be under what I cannot see as a foundation to move me across. He went on to explain that that, that's what we have in our scriptures. You do not, when you look at your Bible, see the original manuscripts. But you trust that underneath what you hold is the perfect bridge from here to God. And you don't cross some arbitrary other spot. You cross right here. That's wisdom. Uh, let me give you another illustration still. If I were to uh, decide to measure something, say I were going to measure uh, a pen... And I grab my son's ruler, you know, his little schoolhouse ruler off of his desk. And I measure that pen, and it's six and a half inches long. Uh, but I'm not satisfied, so I decide I'm going to go get my office ruler because maybe it's a little more specific. Maybe it's not, you know, that bendy, flexy kid kind of ruler. So I get my office ruler. And I find that it's not six and a half inches long. It's six and nine sixteenths. But then I'm not satisfied with that. I'm going to go get an engineer's scale, and I find out now that it's 6.58. But still, that's not enough. So now I go and I get a steel scale, and I put it under lab conditions, and I find that it's not 6.58. It's 6.577. But maybe that's not enough. So I'm going to hop on a plane, and I'm going to fly it over to Scotland Yard, and I'm going to use the master gauges drawn off of a platinum bar that is the standard yard of measurement. It's perfect. I put it on the master gauges and now it's 6.5774. And I'm done. Why? Because it's, it's a scale off of the standard. It's a scale off of the perfect. Now, for all intents and purposes, 
Grady's little plastic ruler got it right, didn't it? For all practical and essential purposes, that 6.5 I got off of his very first ruler or any of the ones in between is good enough. What do we do if we have no standard? What if, for example, somebody broke into Scotland Yard and stole the platinum bar, the standard of all measurement? Uh, It happened, actually. And so now that original perfect measurement, which all other measuring devices are cast from, is gone. What do we do? Do we just throw away all of our rulers and say we could never know again what 6.5774 is? No. What we do is we hold to our rule, trusting that what we have was cast off of the perfect measurement. And that one half of 1%, what do we do? What do I do? When I come to a passage where the manuscript says this verse is not in all manuscripts or this manuscript gives this reading. Number one, none of them call into question any major tenet of our faith. None of them cause me to scratch my head and and say, how do I move forward in my Christianity? What do I do? I will stand here and I will say to you on those very rare occasions, one reading is this, and here's why most scholars hold to it. Another reading could be this, and here's what it would mean. In either case, no major doctrine is challenged. We'll wait for further light. Maybe another manuscript will come. And all the time, as we find more and more copies, more and more manuscripts, this one half of 1% gets narrowed in and dialed in. That's what we do. We deal with the issues honestly. But when we look at the facts... We don't fret that somebody stole the master gauge. We don't worry that we don't have the originals. We know it was cast from the perfect standard that at point in time, the original, inerrant, inspired word of God existed and from it were cast copies with the greatest accuracy known to mankind. That's why Paul could say all scripture is God breathed. That's why Jesus could on 30, uh, 73 occasions say it is written, even standing before Satan himself. That's why Peter could say that God has given us everything required that pertains to life and godliness. One scholar put it this way, given the evidence, if you cannot trust the Bible, we can trust nothing. Or we could say, as Spurgeon of old did, Blessed Bible, thou art all true. The Bible you hold in your hand. Why do we do this? Again, I'm not here to give you a crash course in New Testament manuscript reliability. Its design and intent is to cause you to walk out holding this Bible with greater admiration. Thanking God for His preserving what we have. Thanking God that it is divinely inspired and it's so obvious. Its intent this morning is to cause you to walk out of here confident in your faith. Um, Knowing these numbers isn't going to save you. 
But perhaps, maybe for someone here, the, there's a roadblock, there's a hurdle. And maybe issues like this that have been skirted by the church for way too long, maybe hard questions like that that you never really hear good answers to, uh, how can I trust my Bible, is one of many. Maybe you've never heard that kind of question addressed. But maybe this morning, by looking at the facts, you're saying to yourself, uh, that roadblock is out of the way. And the God of this scripture is real. He's true. His word is trustworthy. If that's you this morning, draw near. Draw near. We've got one more song. Ricky, come on. And we'll be dismissed. Why don't you, uh, as we close, church, thank God. Thank God. Uh, I really feel that uh, God is moving us in the direction of great joy and excitement. Um, Your face, (laughs) church, should convey your confidence in God's word, in God's plan, and in God's redemption through Jesus Christ on the cross. As you go out, your excitement should be infectious. I pray that, that getting information like this doesn't make you a scholar. I pray it makes you in love with God to such a degree that it becomes obvious to your friends and your neighbors and your loved ones, etc. That it would draw more people to Christ and to churches like this who look to gather together around God's word and to worship him. Chuck Swindoll wrote a book called Church Awakening, and I'll be done. And he said in the book, he said, if a church preaches the word, if a church attempts as best they can to have authentic worship, if a church attempts as best they can to create a family atmosphere, if a church attempts as best they can from the leadership down to create all the essential programs to the best of their capability, if they do all those things, there's still one thing lacking that is essential for the kingdom of God. And it is the responsibility of the church, the body of believers, not the one guy up here. It is the responsibility of each one of us to take our part in what he called the catalyst of excitement that comes from the love we have for our God, trusting in the truth of his word, that it would become infectious, that when we go out there, others would sense that there's something going on, not just here, but in your hearts that they ought pay attention to. That is on each one of us, church. I pray that God's word, the truth of it, the reliability of it this morning would excite you among all the other things that God is doing. Let's pray. Father God, we, we are amazed. I'm continually amazed by how you, you solidify our foundation. Lord, we don't need to hide in our faith. We ought to be bold. We have sure and solid ground to stand upon. Father, you have not left us without a word of direction. Father, you have given us truth through the sacred writings. And all scripture is God-breathed, inspired, breathed into life. And it is certainly profitable. Father, the words that we have, the words that you have entrusted to us, they are not idle words, as Moses said. They are our very life. Lord, I pray that as we sing and we wrap up this morning, that we could walk out 
go back to our lives with a renewed confidence that you are true, you are holy, you are dependable, you are reliable. We should fear not. Our faith is not on shaky ground. We trust you, God, and we love you for going to such great extents to undergird us and to show us your great love. We pray in Jesus' name and we'll sing as we leave. Amen.